So back in 2015, we started our church and science series uh, here at our beloved church on Melrose. And as we all know, of course, absolutely nothing has happened since then. Right? Business as usual, evidently. I mean, it's not like we've been besieged by some pandemic or wars broken out in Eastern Europe or anything like that, right? Fortunately. This is a church and science recap. You thought you were going to be done with it with part nine. That was an epic hour-long sermon, part nine. I was perspiring. <laughs> it's probably harder to listen to it than actually deliver it, though. So, But um, this is going to actually be much shorter, and I know I've said that many times, but I, I'm pretty confident. This is a recap, church and science, and we also have a recap of the recap. This is kind of a lot to boil down. Okay, so part one. Uh, our central theme here is uh, that there is a, a basic mainstream misunderstanding of what science is and what it does. Uh, and we reminded ourselves back then, seven short years ago, that science is mutable or that scientific findings are by their very nature ephemeral. Science changes, it adapts as new facts come in. Uh, science is about, what does it do? It, about, it is ultimately, especially if you think about scientific experimentation, about uncovering causal relationships between events. So for example, putting one's hand, we learn very early near a flame, causes discomfort. That's a very important causal relationship. Uh, as an important corollary, uh, contrary to common thought, scientific problem solving is certainly not new. The popular notion that human thinking has been mysteriously transformed by social economic forces uh, like the Enlightenment or even the scientific revolution, uh, as uh, some hold, is in fact seductive. It is seductive because, after all, as we considered, the world now appears so much different than it did just a few decades ago. The reason for this difference has nothing to do with some sort of magical rewiring of our brains, say, 500 years ago. It is because, distinctly because of the accumulation of knowledge. The accumulation of knowledge, and in fact, the recent explosion of knowledge. The ever-increasing accumulation of knowledge. And of course, with knowledge, the accumulation of knowledge, comes knowledge about how to store and retrieve more knowledge. Okay, now, if our worldview fails these tests, that is, if we believe science is, uh, as a science, in science as a novel source of immutable knowledge, if we make that mistake, we might do something completely crazy, like elevate the last two years, elevate scientific practitioners to the status of some order of priestly gatekeepers. Or we might do something much worse, as we considered and will sort of bring to light here as we move forward. Uh, I mentioned then, uh, seven short years ago, that the appearance of discord between, I don't know if you remember the verbiage, between science and church is hallucinatory. It is not particularly mainstream. I'm just going to note very, very quickly, I was kind of blown away just because of some, I don't want to call them coincidences, but Hugh Ross was on the Babylon Bee. Hugh Ross is, I'm a fan of Hugh Ross, I mentioned him in, during part one. He's one of those people that get embroiled in the conversation, trying. he's a Christian astrophysicist. Very interesting character, a great interview. Hallucinatory. That discord is hallucinatory. Uh, if you would, please, I remember that word. Part two, part two, dispelling myths. This is one of my favorites. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it as well. So what we did was we applied simple, rational thinking, a little bit of investigation, biblical investigation, uh, to uh, 
dispel some bizarre myths about the Bible that seem to be held by people who are supposedly rational, rationalists. I just pulled these actually from the rational wiki. Okay, we focused then on four episodes of God's wrath, because those seem to be great fodder, right, uh, for these uh, rationalists. We'll, we'll review two just very briefly here. For one, our good friend Uzzah. Remember Uzzah? He was struck dead by God for uh, trying to steady the ark when the cart, the cart the ark was on, faltered because the oxen, the oxen that were drawing the cart, stumbled. Okay? Uh, at first blush, this might seem like a very capricious, divine act of violence against a well-intentioned laborer, but of course, when we look at it, that view completely changes. It's easy to, this one is easy to peel back exactly what's happening. With really only minimal investigation, what we find really is an extended pattern of utter dereliction on the part of Uzzah, one after the other after the other. Um, and I, I made a point of mentioning it then. I, I want to repeat it again. Okay, I don't want to talk smack about poor Uzzah. He's probably a nice guy, and it's too bad we had to make an example out of him. But the cause, the resulting demise of Uzzah, is not entirely surprising, consider, considering that uh, <laughs> there is a lengthy sequence of delinquencies that preceded it. Uh, there was neglect, carelessness, hubris. You can come up with other names for these too. Self-sufficiency, and the point here is not to go into these in detail. We did go into it a little bit more detail back in part two. Selfishness, and I also pointed out on my own, just on my own, I could just pull, I just pulled those off of people's exegetical work on this particular story. But I, I also added to this that it was apparent to me that he was doing something really, really bad, which was depriving his fellow laborers of resources. He somehow got those oxen, even after that the resources had been allocated to the various people uh, during the move of their the move of their camps. Okay, another one, another one, this is a good one, Elisha entering Bethel. Remember that one? At first blush, we might see a divine act of capricious violence against a group of children, harmless children even. Uh, but this takes a little bit more investigation, but uh, what we find, in fact, is a mob, what is really a mob assault upon a guest to their city, the city of Bethel, likely including, likely, actually, yes, including epithets and mockery concerning Elisha's outward religious practices. So our thesis here, our thesis for part two, our father's revelation is absolutely consistent and rational, and it is not only that, it is really repetitive, which is another theme. It is repetitive. The stories play out, faces change, places change, but the underlying message is the same. Okay, three, how people think. Scientific problem solving isn't you. That is, the ability of people to use observation to learn about the world uh, suddenly didn't fall from the sky at some point during, the, say, the 16th or 17th centuries, as many falsely believe nowadays, evidently. The growing large, uh, the growth, excuse me, the growth of large-scale societies, city-states, or even recently nation-states, produces institutions and regulations and procedures and dictates and laws and statutes. And this has always been the case. This has always been the case, but it is especially obvious with the growth of uh, modern society, uh, which has, uh, as we all know, spawned a massive and ever-growing canon 
of rules, dictates, regulations, statutes, and legal definitions, not to mention, not to mention a massive complex of social norms, and social norms that oftentimes change from one place to a neighboring place. Okay, simply as a matter, simply as a matter of adaptation and even survival, think about it, just in your day-to-day lives, adaptation and even survival, the citizen is required to elevate process. They have to know process just to survive. In fact, many rules, this is interesting, many rules and professions nowadays require, many rules and professions today require the absence of scientific experimentation. They are purely procedural. I don't know if you remember that the example of the machine that makes the integrated circuits. Give, give it a listen if you've got, you got some time to kill. That's what, actually, I think I'm pretty happy with that example. Many rules in science actually demand that you avoid science. Or you could say many rules in technology demand that you avoid science. They're uh, certainly scientific experimentation. Uh, okay, so conforming to process requires task-oriented or tactical thinking. It's just basically kind of a word power thing. The more abstract underlying principle or value that may have given rise to the processes becomes forgotten in a highly structured society, replaced by the process itself. This is a recurring theme, and we'll come back to this. We'll build on this. Indoctrination of process can lead one, and evidently frequently so, to conclude that the answer to everything can be found in little truths or little t-truths or tactics. Adherence to process replaces the underlying value itself, the curse, the systematized society. Part four, why miracles? Why miracles? So uh, I think our, our theme here is maybe more of a curiosity than anything else. It's, I can't be the, I have not heard this anywhere else, but I'm, where I don't remember having heard this anywhere else, but I can't imagine I'm the first person to ever think of this. Um, so what is the deal with miracles? So we start with a very simple observation. I've never found anyone that disagrees with this, by the way. People are impressed with improbable events. Improbable events. Even if those events have no bearing on our general condition, we remember them. We remember. Now, I'll tell you, this is an example I did not give originally, uh, originally but I'll, I'll give it now because this is a good example. So uh, years ago, I remember I was driving to a friend's house, actually lived very close to me, so it was a short drive, uh, and I spotted uh, an Oscar Mayer Wienermobile. You ever see those Oscar Mayer Wienermobiles? There's actually a few of them. Uh, there's like six or seven or something. Uh, and, and so, I, wow, that's really unusual. You don't see the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile too often, you know, just driving around town. And, of course, when I saw my friend, like when I arrived, I, the first, one of the first things I said is, hey, I saw the Oscar, I saw the Wienermobile back there. And they were like, wow, really? The Wienermobile in our neighborhood? And I can hardly imagine a, a more trivial event. Like, can you think of anything less consequential than the Wienermobile? And yet, I remember to this very day, and I think about all the things that I've forgotten. <clears throat> From a Darwinistic approach, this seems completely counterintuitive, because in Darwinism, or in evolution, at least classical evolution, uh, you would think that survival and selection uh, would be determined by adaptation to likely events. Likely events the ability to adapt to the routine ebbs and flows of everyday life. That is basically, supposedly, how selection and adaptation work. 
Okay, so my hypothesis, and again, this is just maybe more of a curiosity, but I'll just put it out there. I'll repeat it. You've heard this before, but I'm changing the words, wording a little bit. Could it be that we are wired in this way, that is, to be impressed by the improbable, by design, so to make us, God's created, his image bearers, more receptive to story? Part five, what do you mean enlightened? Uh, this was a little bit convoluted. We took a lot of twists and turns, just like we did with part nine. Uh, it, it's important to uh, reflect on the motivation, reflect back to the motivation for this church and science series. We really seek to address the appearance, the, the appearance of discord between the church and science. Or let's say, let's say, I'll come up with another way of saying it. Appearance of discord between a Christ-centered worldview and a science-centered worldview. Hey, so when did science first appear? Well, we talked about that. Scientific problem solving in humans is prehistoric. There's no question about that. Remember the example? This is reflecting back to part one with the fishing net. Remember the example with the fishing net? Okay. Um, what has happened, again, this is repeated material. What has happened is the rapid accumulation of knowledge. Rapid accumulation of knowledge. Rapid accumulation of knowledge. People always have, have had scientific problem solving, but we've accumulated volumes and volumes of knowledge. And that includes, by the way, like I said, ways of uh, storing and retrieving even more knowledge. And of course, things like instrumentation to try to uh, capture or record even more precise knowledge and analytical methods, ways of processing knowledge to produce more knowledge. Okay, many people point to a pivot around 500 years ago or so um, that brought uh, the acceleration of knowledge, like a pivot point, they call it the Enlightenment. This period, uh, this is two, two words here, and I don't know if the root is the same. This period, not coincidentally, it is not a coincidence, but it does coincide with the emergence of more organized, this is important, coincides with the emergence of more organized and codified political structures, the emergence of nation states. It's not coincidental, but it does coincide. The perceived or purported discord between the Christ-centered worldview world and the science-centered worldview seems to always be couched in the materialistic or empirical aspect. You know, you, we had a number of examples of this, like the age of the earth. How old is the earth? So you got this really like, uh, heated sort of discussion. And it's not like something that's way out in the mainstream or anything, right? 6,000 years old. No, it's 4 billion years old. Okay. These are all materialistic. These discussions, when you do find them, all, all seem to be centered um, around the empirical aspect or the materialist, uh, materialistic aspect. But as we hint, this is kind of the first places where we really start to hint in this series, this is a really big mistake. Um, so around this time, the Enlightenment that is, we find the concurrent growth or reemergence of the popularity of humanism, and that is a really big deal. It, it's not surprising, if you think about it, uh, that as humans seem to take mastery over nature, humans start to take the accumulate knowledge, and they can apply knowledge to take mastery over nature, irrigation, plows, different methods of harvesting, um, damming rivers, as you can just use your imagination. This ability to master nature, to alter nature, to conform nature, right? This is a very empowering thing. And so it is not surprising to see that uh, it, people could very easily imagine that they are self-sufficient. 
quite natural. If you can change nature, self-sufficiency, and even possess agency over morality, those are two big features of early humanism, self-sufficiency and agency over morality. Uh, By the way, as I mentioned originally, if you're interested in finding harsh reproofs of humanism, all you got to do is read humanistic literature. I'm not saying that as some sort of like smackdown on them or anything. Actually, that's really, because there are a lot of great intellectuals. I always think of Kurt Vonnegut, but they are very critical. These seminal big humanistic figures and writers, authors, they're very critical of humanism. Uh, Six, there is no such thing as nothing. Subtitled, don't take the blue pill. Uh, Here we pick up our trajectory from the previous installment. That was uh, part five. And it turns out that God's word rarely suggests the notion of nothingness. So, for example, God brings forth uh, creation out of the void. But, of course, God's already there. That doesn't qualify as nothingness. We have void. God is doing something. Okay, God is there. But, but, in the age of humanism, say the time of the uh, Enlightenment, I argue that nothingness is the engine that drives secular modernity. And the implication is very simple, actually. The logic is not particularly, it's not a particularly outrageous claim. Okay, materialism offers that the world, stuff, materialism, stuff, uh, is only knowable from the mind. That's a basic tenet of, and that's actually of classical materialism as well. Uh, so, logic is simple. So, know you, no you, you, no mind, no mind, no stuff. And if you have no stuff, what do you have? Nothing. Uh, by the way, just a couple days ago, oh, this is kind of interesting. Um, I, uh, there's a podcast that I pretty routinely listen to. They had an edition dedicated to nihilism. Nihilism, um, which is kind of unusual because they usually talk politics. The host made a comment and I'm going to paraphrase. I thought this was really interesting. God, God brought creation out of the void. Modern secularists attempt to return creation back into the void. Okay, so uh, like I said, uh, this installment, part six, we're talking about right now, picks up from the previous installment, part five. We also hint at the main point of this series. Materialism, like we said a moment ago, merely suggests that the world stuff is only knowable through the mind or from the mind. Modern idealism, on the other hand, it would seem, requires inward reflection, the preeminence of the self, the reinventing of the self, the rebranding of the self. And we visited a quote, one of my favorite quotes of all time by H.L. Mencken, and we'll, uh, I'll read the quote to you in just a few minutes in better context. Part seven, the R word, religion, the R word, religion. One consequence of a task-oriented society is the need to categorize, categorize, task orientation, tactics, categories. If we label someone or some people as religious, are we not merely labeling people who enjoy labeling others? Seems completely natural to me. Now, reading God's written revelation, one does not come away with a warm and fuzzy feeling or sentiment towards institutions and systems of power, to be sure. So, I mean, we could start anywhere, but uh, how about uh, 
uh, I got an idea. What we'll do is we'll establish um, a, a, a not-so-federated system of uh, leaders, quote-unquote judges. They weren't really judges, leaders. Okay, uh, well, it kinda, that whole episode kind of worked out okay for a while, uh, but people kept slipping into idolatry. And uh, the Chronicle episodes with the very well-known words, uh, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone, what a, what a great phrasing too. Everyone did what was right in their own sight. That's the end of Judges, Judges, end of uh, chapter 21. Okay, so, okay, that didn't work. Let's get us a monarchy. Uh, a king. That's a ticket. We'll get ourselves a king. And that certainly was a rough start. Uh, evidently, uh, both Saul and David just went absolutely bat crazy. Um, and uh, if you remember the deathbed, death, uh, what was it, um, David's deathbed conversation or instructions to his son Solomon? Um, that is in, do I have that here? 1 Kings 2 5 8. <laughs> uh, so, anyway, so they went nuts. And. Uh, and so as rough a start that was, the, the ending of that whole episode was even worse. Although, although a Je a Jehoiakim, was it Jehoiakim, the last king? He kind of made it out okay. Okay. Now, of course, all the while, while all that is going on, uh, how about some prophets? Let's drop some wisdom on these people, some people that are godly. Well, uh, some, in fact, make it out okay, uh, but uh, others, not so much. And uh, often... Uh, a lot of the prophets are felled, chased down, and felled by some establishment or another. Eight, what's in a proof? The only good proof is in a bottle of whiskey. Here we mostly focused on a... I'm just kidding. Here we mostly... I just want to make sure you're paying attention. Here we mostly focused on a loan word, proof, as a noun or to prove, to prove. As we considered, the word proof itself has many varied meanings, both linguistically and also from one setting to another. That's important. That is important. Do you remember that? Do you remember the quote from, um, oh, I can't expect you to, re to remember that. Uh, Shulgin, Shulgin, the quote about proof, the fact that pro pro to prove in many languages actually means two very different things. We don't even think about it that way. But, but here, so I'm going to say it again. Uh, uh, the word proof itself has many varied meanings. It has linguistic different linguistic meanings, but as we know, it also has very different meanings depending on context or discipline or setting. And this is enormously ironic uh, as the implication of a proof is usually regarded as decisive. Part nine. Part nine. That was quick. Okay. My way or the highway. So if you think materialism is a bummer, wait till you get a load of idealism. And this is the capstone of our series. This was the longest of the nine installments. There were some twists and turns. Okay, you guys hung in there with me. That was a long one. Um, we visited a number of previous themes. We did so with a slightly different lens. Um, we looked at Plato's allegory of the cave. This is important because it sort of frames up the idea of the early emergence of materialism. The distinction between essence, this is how I have it written here, the distinction between essence and whatever manifestation of this essence to which we're privy. In other words, what shape that particular essence takes in our corporeal world. So in Plato's Allegory of the Caves, you had the people, they were the essence, and then you had the shadows on the wall that were the projection of the essence, or that particular manifestation that the actual prisoners were seeing. So, while debatable, um, 
this, I think, Plato, this is 2,400 years ago or so, this serves really as a criticism of materialism, which is really interesting, because our materialism, our materialism, as Plato suggests, might really be some manifestation of some underlying essence. I mean, that's kind of the intimation. The subordination of essence or principle to materialism. So we looked at a number of examples. Uh, the cowing of language, the alteration of language, um, the growth of literature focused on the structure and quantification of faith and practices, and the growth of literature on self-improvement. And we also played a little game. Remember that? We had fun. We played a little game. Name that movement. Of course, what was that movement? Well, it was idealism, modern idealism. But we advanced, um, kind of we advanced what we had looked at in previous, some of the previous installments, by, especially installment six, by um, uh, considering some of its implications. So, the modern, the original modern, original modern, probably maybe Hegel, the, the original modern intention was to reintroduce or at least appreciate the immaterial. If you want, you could call it spiritual, the immaterial. Um, and uh, while I may not have explicitly said it then, the original reinvigoration of classical idealism didn't last long. It did not hold, and uh, it couldn't possibly hold. It could not possibly, that particular interpretation of reinvigoration of idealism, the idea of the immaterial, can't possibly work in a structured, systematized society. In the absence of essence, individually projected ideals serve as an insidious counterfeit. So powerful is this force, and so completely endemic and pervasive this force, Daniel Borston's quote, I'm not going to read it here, but basically, uh, well, I, this is the way I boiled it down here. In his quote, Daniel Borston implies that ideals in consumer materialistic society have become so extravagant that people routinely and simultaneously maintain contradictory expectations. Okay, almost done. Recap of the recap. I'm recapping the recap. Huh? Okay. Uh, okay. The, my claim from part one, you've got a couple loose ends here. The apparent discord between church and science is hallucinatory. The H.L. Mencken quote, it is not, I love this quote, it is not materialism that is the chief curse of the world as pastors teach, but idealism. Men get into trouble by taking their visions and hallucinations too seriously. As societies grow, so too systems of management, right? rules, statutes, edicts, regulations of commerce and conduct alike. Simply as a matter of survival, people must conform. We have to learn to be task-oriented because that's just the way the world that in which we live operate. And after a while, the rule, the process takes preeminence over the underlying value that gave rise to it. You remember we looked at some examples, the accident on the freeway, the 210. I originally said 101, but I said, no, that's not good because that's too close, the 210 freeway. After a while, the underlying value or principle is completely forgotten in place of the process. So insanely so that the mere means of communication that we're exposed to, this is infested even the way we absorb information, social media, mass media, 
Those forms of communication are specifically structured to serve as conduits of task-oriented color inside or outside the line ideas. We are so entirely immersed in it. It measurably affects our basic problem-solving psychology. Process is so endemic, so endemic, as I mentioned earlier, as we considered earlier, that we find that even nowadays most professions and even many professions in technology are anti-science. They are all about procedure. Okay, and then so meanwhile, we've got that, and meanwhile back at the ranch, as followers of Christ, we know that within each image bearer, there exists a longing, a fundamental longing for truth, capital T truth, the big T truth, capital T truth. But all we're left with in systematized societies are little t truths, the processes. Not only have these little t truths replaced underlying principles and values, they become idealized in hopes, idealized in hopes of fulfilling our longing. The little t truths, the processes, we rely, we idealize the process to fill the hole for our longing. Even trying to conform divine meaning into some ephemeral opinion of science may only serve as another example of this, just one more hallucination. It is just another hallucination. Another attempt at imagining the process as the source of the motivation for the process itself. One, just another hallucination. So, some semi-rhetorical questions. You can make these rhetorical if you want. I'm not going to answer them. So, how many prohibitions were there in Eden? If you drive a car in California, how many prohibitions are there? How many prohibitions did Moses bring down from Sinai? That's actually debatable. Probably seven. I'll answer that one. And when God in corporeal was asked about the commandments, what did he say? He gave two very closely related imperatives. So, I mean, really, why do you think it is that the period of the judges failed so miserably? Why do you think it is that the period of the kings failed so miserably? Ended up, what, in the raising of the temple, the destruction of the city of Jerusalem? Why do you think establishments did in so many prophets? Why do you think God says to take the narrow path because few find it. I mean, is it really that big of a mystery? Is it really that big of a mystery? All these stories that were told through the Old Testament, through the continuum of God's revelation, all tell us the same thing over and over and over again. Oh, I hope I made some small contribution in the series. I'll tell you very briefly, uh, I have, I'm fashioning, at least in my imagination, another series that's going to be purely topical. It's going to be very focused. It's not going to be conceptual. This is a very conceptual, obviously, uh, for better or for worse, a series, but more topical uh, series. And I've kind of sketched it out. So if you invite me back, um, well, well, we'll just see how it goes. I, I have I have some ideas for the name of the series, but I'm not, I, I don't think it's ready to for, for prime time. But I'm kind of happy with some of the ideas, at least that I've sketched out. So uh, that is it for this Sunday Church on Melrose. Great job, everybody, pulling together. Everybody chipped in. Man, that was fantastic. <sighs> okay, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are grateful 
for the fellowship at Church on Melrose. And we are so very grateful for each other. And we're grateful for our pastor and Gia. We're grateful for Dan and Lonnie for their faithfulness. We have a lot to be thankful for. And tomorrow is the 4th of July. I didn't mention that. We are thankful for this country. It is a remarkable experiment in human liberty, all made possible by your divine plan. We are incredibly grateful for that. So we hope that we pray that we have a safe extended holiday, whatever uh, our activities we decide to engage in. We ask for healing for Damon and Gia. We ask that as we are so immersed in the society around us, we don't allow ourselves to become overly cynical, but that your will always guide us to your underlying purpose and your pattern and your desire for our lives and how you can work in our lives and how we can serve your will despite all the volumes of distractions that we are bombarded with from one moment to the next. As we leave this place, we ask for safe travels. We ask that you guide us and lead us and you be with us this coming week. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.